welcome. I'm joined today by Nick Frost, Professor of Social Work at Leeds Beckett University and he's also the Chair of uh, North Yorkshire and Calderdale Safeguarding Children Board. So welcome to the programme, Nick. Thank you. Thanks, David. It's a pleasure. Now, uh, it's quite uh, chaotic, some would say, other would say certainly challenging landscape at the moment for safeguarding boards and for the whole sort of safeguarding process within certainly within England and Wales. So what's your take on it, Nick? Because, I mean, you've been doing the work for quite some time, apart from the fact that you're in academia as well and picking up signals there. What's your thoughts about the way that things are being dealt with at the moment? Yeah, it's very central to my world, this. I spend a lot of time thinking about it. I keep having this parallel in my head between Brexit and the abolition of safeguarding boards because Brexit is very easily expressed. Let's leave the EU and then it leads to all these challenges. And equally with the abolition of safeguarding boards, it's quite easy to sum up in one sentence. But the more you think through the implications in terms of workforce development, partnership work, funding, independence, scrutiny, there's an endless list. So there's no doubt we're at a big changing point. As we're speaking today, we're awaiting the um, draft regulations working together safeguarding children, Mm. which will be the 2018 version. And I keep hearing it could be any day now. So we will see. Uh, but a very challenging period of change and with some threats in there, I'm sure. Well, we hear too that um, the, this timetable that's come out, that um, from now on there's going to be public consultation, whatever that means. And then in early 2018, uh, they're going to be looking at the consultation responses and then and the, the kind of what they call cross-government clearance of guidance. So, I mean, it, it's quite a, a lengthy timetable they've got for themselves and the publication of working together, as you said, in the spring. And then a 15-month period, apparently, for safeguarding partners to agree to publish and implement. Is that your understanding as well? Yes, that's exactly my understanding. So it, I think we're going to be into 2020, aren't we, on that timetable mm. in terms of things actually being implemented. So seems to me a bit of a contradiction and... Um, in a way, I've been peddling misinformation because when I've given lectures on this, I've spoken about the Wood Report as a trend towards deregulation. But from what we hear now, there's going to be lots of regulations working together. So it's a, it's a little bit of a quandary, I think. Is it a deregulation? To a degree, it is. But apparently, I hear from, uh, I have had meetings with civil servants that there'll still be a 12 monthly report, apparently, not called an annual report. There'll be, there may be a sort of quality assurance framework. There'll be independent scrutiny. So I think we'll still, in this new deregulated environment, still have lots of regulations. So make that what you will. Can't wait. Lovely, <laughs> lovely. Apparently now, though, they've actually kicked off by um, starting interviews for the chair of the new Safeguarding Practice Review Panel, you know, where the serious case reviews are of a national standing will go to. Um, have you kind of come across um, much activity about that? No, I, I haven't particularly, but I, I do reflect on this, and I think I have my little minor place in history because the government were very critical of a serious case review that I commissioned on a, a tragic case, a little boy called Hamza Khan, mm. which was at the area where you and I chair, David, mm. uh, and we, we 
we were very heavily criticised by the, the then Minister Tim Lawton about the quality of that report. I thought it was unfair uh, challenge, but we, we were robust in responding to that. And I, I think that if you think of the other serious case reviews around then, the Rochdale CSE one, the Daniel Pelker one, a few others they were very critical of. So my guess is it was out of that critique that they wanted to centralise the process and have a tighter grip on it. So uh, I, I can see where the governments are coming from. Probably a good thing, I, I, I did write a little article saying that serious case reviews had uh, reached the end of the road, that you know, we, you know, the public critique would be, well, we've heard all that before. Mm. Very expensive. By the time you've done them and published them, the event is probably 18 months, two years previous, and a bit of a cliche, but people always say, oh, well, we've changed since then. So I did feel the serious case review had reached the end of the road. So we'll have to see what the new system is. My big hope, my fear is that what will be seen as a national review will be driven by the media. But I think what the um, civil servants are saying is it will be more thematic. You know, if there's a new challenge, then they'll make that into a national review. But the proof of that will be, and the mm. proof of the pudding will be. That. On a simplistic level, just you know, but just to get everybody's head clear, I mean, is it your understanding that this new child safeguarding practice review panel are going to be looking at cases of that they call complex or of national importance, which essentially means that they'll decide which ones are that, but the local authority in which they sit still pays the piper? Is that your understanding? Hmm, I haven't seen that. Again, that will be in work, working together. So my understanding is that they will nominate these, you know, reviews of national significance. We'll have to see what they are, and that the the, the local at uh, the local level will do, say, a review of the child death where they might be learning about the system. And hmm. um, it it does worry me that, that there's a theme here. They've called it a practice review panel. So. Hmm. It's sort of implicit in there that there's some review of practice and then we know where that goes, that someone's to blame. And uh, unless there's been very, very poor practices or whatever, obviously they're to blame. But generally, I, I find professionals performing to a high level, addressing complexity. But the one I was involved in that was high profile, Hamza Khan, a very complex case, mainly where... Um, the children were hidden from uh, view rather than very present uh, to services. So generally, I find that practitioners are facing complexity, and I don't like this blame culture. And I hope that you know, the pra you know that that emphasis on practice review suggests that practice has gone wrong. Well, sometimes it hasn't. Sometimes there's complexity. Generally, it tends to be um, you know some violent parents or someone who's to blame rather than the professional. So. I do hope we're not going into another era of, of professional blame. Well, yeah, I mean, me too. Uh, I, I do. What I do understand is that, to my mind, it's a little bit kind of complicated, but that there's talk that they will establish a pool of reviewers to conduct national reviews. But on the other hand, and the, that's the regulation side of it, but on the guidance side of it, they talk about um, commissioning a reviewer um, now, but they don't actually say who they're actually saying. Is it the local authority that would commission it from an agreed national pool? Or is it they're just saying, look, you ought to establish a pool locally and then we approve 
or not of the person that you get to be the author. I mean, I think these are quite important issues as we go forward. Yeah, absolutely. This is an area where I'd like to see more regulation. I don't understand it could have happened before. So, for example, sometimes to criticise serious case reviews for being too long, sometimes for being too short. <clears throat> I, I would have thought five years ago they could have pr produced a serious case review template with, you know, this should be about 2,000 words in this section, 5,000 in another. And also, we've sort of been on the edge of having a pool of reviewers that have been accredited, but it's never quite gone that far. But I, I, I would quite like to see a clear template for serious case reviews and approved pool of reviewers who've been through accreditation. I, I, I don't see what the problem is with that, really. And if this system moves towards that, then, then that will be mm. fine. But as we've already said, the small print, well, the small print hopefully will be available even perhaps when this uh, podcast goes out. Yeah, well, hopefully that's part of a consultation process that we can all, yeah, you know, yeah. put forward our views on it. Because from, from my point of view, too, I would like clarity on, um, as opposed to case-by-case -case kind of consultation about when to publish. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. We're, yeah, your listeners may not be aware mm. that as chairs, we have to write to the National Panel every time we commission a serious case review. Mm. And then about the... Uh, about it being commissioned and then through the process about publication and it's very complicated to do with coroner's reports to do with criminal proceedings and then you have some decisions about whether you should just put it on your website or convene a press conference it's a very very complex process mm. and again I'm, you know I'm not a big one for loads of detailed regulation but it's such a high profile issue I think the more guidance we have for regulation in this field, the better, really. Yeah. Well, the 2017 um, Social Work Children Act that came into force this year talks about the three safeguarding partners being required to make arrangements to work together, etc., etc., um, and the relevant agencies, you know, being kind of um, uh, police, health, and, and the local authority. But I mean, obviously, we, we've had we've been down the road so many times. I've actually said, "Well, what exactly is health?" And I mean, and all the health partners I talk to, obviously, uh, you know, can say, "Yeah, that's going to be really tricky because there's no one person in health that tends to speak for the whole of the health service. They've all got their different disciplines, and therefore their different agendas." But they still seem to be going ahead with that. But I've noticed that the DFE and some of the stuff that's come out so far are actually saying that safeguarding partners are required to arrange for the independent scrutiny of the arrangements, mm -hmm. which sort of falls back to the likes of what you and I are doing at the moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where do you see that ending? Yeah, well, there's, there's lot. Th this is what I meant by the Brexit analogy. It's easy mm -hmm. enough to say uh, abolish safeguarding boards, but then all these challenges. So certainly local authority, police and health are seen as the three primary partners. But... With even you mentioned the health complexities, even within in the local authority, should that be led by the chief executive, the lead member, the director of children's services? Mm. Um, so that that's complicated. The, the obvious danger is that the, the other partners could think, oh, I'm, we're marginal to this now, age of austerity, we're stretched for resources. It's obviously up to, I call them the big three in parlance, let's leave the big three to get on with it. So. That, and I'm keen in both my boards to keep all the partners, particularly the the uh, community centre sector, the voluntary sector, completely on board. So 
we need to find a way of recognising what is the primacy of the three partners. We can't get away from that. But how do we keep the other agencies on board? And when it comes to things like funding, um, maybe other <laughs> agencies. <laughs> Why should we fund this if there's three, you know, the, the big three are in charge of this? Loads of challenges. I mean, one paradox I'm finding, I don't know what you're finding, David, I'm actually leading in, certainly in North Yorkshire, on the future of the, of the safeguarding arrangements. So, mm. in a way, you could say it's Turkey's voting for Christmas. The, the axes abolished the safeguarding board, but I've been the one that's convened the meetings, planned the policies, got everyone together. Um, so, you know, it's hard to know who's going to play the leadership role yeah. from, the, from the big break. Well, interestingly enough, in the boards, the two boards that I chair, there seems to be a, a kind of a certainly a universal kind of agreement that there will be a safeguarding presence. Absolutely. And that's OK. I think that that's important to get that out of the way to start with. It's not going to be kind of dissipated and just everybody does their own thing. However... What I find fascinating so far is some of the regulations that have come out, you know, or gu guidance from the DFE, actually talks about the three partners, like you said. But on one hand, you mentioned funding there. Well, let's just f focus on that for a second. I mean, because it actually says levels of funding from each safeguarding partner should be equitable and proportionate. Okay, they're not at the moment, because no. the police pay very, very little in comparative terms to health and to the local authority. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so being equitable and proportionate, um, that's a bit of a stretch, isn't it? It absolutely is. And, and the, you know, the police are obviously very stretched in terms of their resources. Again, I'm hoping the final guidance will be clear. It seems to make sense, doesn't it, that it should be 33 and a third split between the big three. Mm. So uh, we, we will see, but then... It ducks the question of how, if they're paying a third of the pie each, it ducks the question of how big is the pie. So, mm. uh, I, I, I mean, my areas that I know well, and I know some areas apart from the two where I chair, people just say, I mean, this is a critique of the Wood Report. But I will say on, in this forum, the more I read the Wood Report, the more um, gaps there are in it. So, for example, I was asked to speak to some workforce development people about the implications of Wood. So... I literally went through the Wood Report and did a, a word search on workforce development. And there's very, very little in there. He seems to relate it to um, learning from serious case reviews. So we've got a brilliant system of workforce development. It's been one of the high achievements of safeguarding boards. I know in Bradford, you should be very proud of your workforce development. Um, and yet, you know, really marginalised in the in the Wood Report. In fact, he sort of seems quite critical that safeguarding boards are doing that. So, you know, it's one of the many, many questions mm. that, that the report uh, led open. Oh, well, we, we, we wait with bated breath, anticipation <laughs> and a sort of and in a sense of hope. But I want to move on, if I might, to talk about the actual work of safeguarding, if I might. Um, because interestingly enough, I mean, this program, I'm very delighted that it's got quite a large audience in, in both, um, well, internationally, it goes into over 100 countries, but uh, uh, America and Japan have got substantial uh, numbers of listeners as well, and they must get quite puzzled sometimes by the complications that we make for ourselves. Yeah. Um, but 
in terms of the future, I, I'm having conversations uh, that are going along the lines of maybe more um, sim symmetry, maybe more kind of coming together with adult safeguarding and child safeguarding, not not to sort of merge, but to, to kind of look at e economies of scale um, and things that we do together, you know, like both adult safeguarding and child safeguarding, for example, focus on, say, domestic abuse, focus on mental health or substance abuse, or even the transition from childhood to adulthood for, um, say, young people with learning difficulties. You know, there's an awful lot of, com of, of consensus there in terms of thinking. Um, do you see the future being more um, shared in that respect? Yes, I, I certainly hope so. I mean, it's even uh, your international uh, listenership will be even more confused when I mention health and well-being boards and community safety <laughs> partnership <laughs> as well. So if, if the listeners could en envisage a Venn diagram with four circles, you'd have the adults board, the children board, the community safety partnership, the health and well-being board. They all have their own business, but in the middle, they all overlap, and they all overlap in different ways. You mm. really wouldn't start from there, would you, if you had a blank sheet? Um, Not really. So, no. so um, for example, in Calderdale, we've had some very good research led by the Community Safety Partnership, and it's highlighted certainly two issues more that are relevant to the Children's Board, the ones you mentioned, uh, domestic abuse and child sexual exploitation. So... They're coming from community safety, if you like, a crime and safety perspective, and they're coming up with issues that are interest to us. So we need to work more and more closely across all these four boards and uh, make sure, for example, in Calderdale, we have amalgamated the admin support for children and adults, and that is paying dividends. So a lot of the functions are similar, obviously, minuting meetings, but uh, quality audits, um, homicide reviews, serious case reviews, very similar. So we need to work more and more holistically. Mm. Of course, we've got a paradox, David, that you'll be aware of. Um, adult safeguarding boards are now statutory and children's safeguarding <laughs> boards are no, not statutory. So that makes the, the Venn diagram even more complex than it was uh, last year. Yeah. Well, let's not go down the road of madness. <laughs> but anyway, um, I, I, I also have got this kind of thinking at the moment. I'd like to take your opinion on it. When I originally kind of was involved in frontline practice in child protection, um, the, pre, the predecessors of the safeguarding boards had very much smaller agendas, or at least you know very you know fewer subject headings, if you like. Now it seems to have increased exponentially, and I'm wondering if there's an argument for looking at a different arrangement important but but slightly separate or maybe joint to look at what i would call complex safeguarding issues so for example the whole radicalization prevent agenda um, issues such as female genital mutilation issues such as modern day slavery um, i mean even health issues that we're considering safeguarding matters now for example of obesity in children i'm, I'm thinking all of these are now on our table in addition to all the other kind of matters that we traditionally look at. I mean, what's your view on that? Well, you must be a mind reader, because I've got some scribbled notes here of things I wanted to mention, mm. and you've just mentioned them all. So uh, it struck me, we had a, a Good Day conference uh, up in North Yorkshire, 
and there was the choice of workshops and you've just more or less gone through the list so the workshops were female genital mutilation child sexual exploitation preventing radicalization online cyberbullying and mm. slavery mm. so what struck me and i was chairing it and i said all those issues five years ago probably wouldn't have been there. Ten years ago certainly wouldn't have been there. So I, I think that's the strength of the safeguarding world and why I hate the blame culture when it does happen because our professionals and the ones that matter, David, as you and I know, are the frontline social workers, the frontline teachers, the frontline nurses and health visitors. They're the ones that matter. They are confronting these new emerging complex issues in their everyday practice. So I think the job of our trendy word at the moment is architecture isn't it the, the job of our architecture is to support these frontline workers in addressing new and emerging issues and if you're still doing this podcast in five years time it, it, it's hard to imagine but people will be mentioning issues then that we haven't thought of yet so yeah. we need um, yeah. very professional staff who are very well informed who are supported who have a critical thinking skills so they can look at new challenges and know how to respond to them. So what I see, and this is the other note I had that I wanted to say, 98% of the time I see highly committed professionals dealing with complexity and responding to it very well. So the challenge for me for the safeguarding arrangements, whatever they are, is how can we best support those staff in doing these complex jobs? Okay, good. I want to finally ask a couple of questions, if I might, Nick, about our world, our profession, social work, because, you know, it's often maligned and, and misunderstood, but at, at the same time, you know, we can't just go ahead and sort of cry kind of foul all the time. But I do um, have a particular passion that I think most of my listeners will know about, or people that read the blogs and so forth, that um, the image of social work especially in the media, I do feel is imbalanced mm -hmm. and, and, and does need, you know, considerable um, levelling. Just uh, not, and not for just the sake of actually making social workers feel better, but for the sake of the new case tomorrow on the doorstep, when getting the trust of a family and getting, getting in to work with them, you know, easier. So what I mean, what would you say? Is there any kind of initiatives or any kind of thinking that you've got? Because you you are in the, on the academic side of social work yeah, te teaching, yeah. and I mean about the new, if you like, let's call them the new crop. I hate that, but never mind. The new yeah, yeah. group of social workers coming through these days, about how they see the image of the profession they're entering into. Yeah, yeah, a very interesting challenge. I'm a qualified social worker, very committed social worker and very proud social worker. And it's great seeing that the young people, we have a bachelor's course and a master's course that both leads to qualifications, really high caliber, enthusiastic people. There isn't a recruitment problem onto the courses, which is interesting. I think the, where the problem kicks in is, is arguably a retention problem once they're in the professional world. And I try and motivate this, the um, students with their role as change agents, and I've got a range of quotes, but I interviewed a young woman who left care, who is now quite a big shot in a charity, and she said, uh, I have this wonderful social worker, he changed my life, she reckoned she wasn't going to get into university, and the social worker went there and somehow got her into university, and that changed her life, and as I say, she's now 
you know, a leading uh, person in quite a big charity. So that that when you hear that that a social worker can change lives in that way, it's very motivating. Mm-hmm. And I think probably the public, uh, I've noticed, there's been a more positive um, version of social working some soap operas on the TV recently. So. I think it, it's around what we were talking about before. When you have these serious case reviews and the blame culture, that tends to, to lead to the negative image. Yeah. But I think we can promote a much more positive image. Well, it's um, interesting you're saying that. Yeah, sorry. Just um, just to say that at the moment, BASWA, British Association of Social Work, is having, is having a right old ding-dong with the, the producers of EastEnders, the soap oh, really? by portraying a social worker as a kind of cardboard cutout. Uh, my example was from Coronation Street, where two <laughs> that were very positive, two different ones. So. Yeah, so. I, I'm not aware of EastEnders. So, but, uh, what, what do you think of this, though? Because I'm pushing it, and I, I'm, I'm working with the British Association of Social Workers at the moment to sort of see if we can develop this further. But I'm a real believer in actually uh, encouraging frontline social workers to talk to the media um, yeah, about good news. I mean, it's for people at a much higher pay grade to deal with the challenges and the, the cases that are, are more often in the media, but I don't see any reason why local radio, local free newspapers, a couple of journalists that live down the road can't can't talk to social workers about the, the success stories, of which there are thousands every day, and we never... I mean, I always say that, and I, I, had, uh, uh, I, put, I had an article, I got a page in The Guardian that I write, and, an, uh, and that got a phenomenal response recently when I wrote... Also, that you never see a headline that says social worker does good job. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're, we're, yes. Well, I'll say the day on the twentieth of October, a podcast started from the BBC, arrival to yours, David, on the adoption process, and mm. apparently it's sixteen, I think, podcasts. And I've heard the first one, and the social worker comes across really well, and it's going to follow the whole process, interviewing grandparents, parents, the judge. So that's the sort of thing. Good. I mean, that's not competition, that's helpful, that's great. Yeah, yeah. and I mentioned something that I was aware of last week. A colleague I worked with in my early days as social worker has just completed 40 years as a frontline case-carrying social worker, a, a female colleague that I worked with in the early 1980s. So that is a hell of an achievement, isn't mm. it? And uh, she, she should, I would hope she'd get an MBE or whatever rather than some of the celebs <laughs> that seem to get them. So uh, we have got success stories. Of course, because we're dealing with complexity and social problems, of course, some of the work you know, can be seen as very challenging. Occasionally mm. things go wrong, but they, we must get better at uh, the success stories, the family support, the successful adoptions. Well, you and I know the vast majority of children is uh, effectively safeguarded, aren't oh, they? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and, 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 the ones that hit the headlines are the ones where, you know, oh, arguably, it's I know, gone. I know. It's always, I mean, it's more sensational. But a good friend of mine, Bill McKittrick, who sadly passed away earlier this year, yeah, um, yeah. He, he was director of Bristol. And. Um, he was one of the first to let the BBC cameras in, if you remember. To oh, I do remember that, yes. Yeah, and, yeah. But, it, I mean, but that's it's never gained the momentum I think it should have done because you know, people are still, I think local authorities and others still totally confuse confidentiality with secrecy. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and I just, it's so wrong. 
Yeah, I, I do think that we the the profession got gets a lot of respect from other professions. So, like you do, I work very closely with the police, and it's a proper partnership now. And you know, there's the occasional mm. tension, but generally we're working in such good partnership. And I think the police really respect the role of social workers. I've heard the same from the judiciary, from medical staff. So I think within the professional bubble, where the profession is very well respected, it is with the media area where we do have some mm. challenges. All right, last question, Nick. Just a minute, if you would. Um... People listening that might be considering social work as a profession, why should they? I think, I, I really mean this, it's a fantastic job. You'd never be bored, whatever. You'd be challenged, but you'd never be bored. As I said earlier, you can change lives. Look at it more in career terms. Um, once you've done your two, three, four, hopefully longer in the frontline teams, people often develop a passion, say adoption, fostering, leaving care, and there's still, even in this age of austerity, there's still opportunities to move into those specialist niches, which are very fulfilling. So I would sincerely recommend it as a career on, on all levels, in terms of a career, because everyone's got mortgages to pay, but also in terms of fulfillment and, you know, going home at the end of the day and feeling that, a bit of a cliche, but that you have made a difference. Well, Professor Nick Frost, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.